so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Well, hello there, and welcome once again to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in again for the great man, Tim Alders. It's an honor to get to, to sit down with you, talk about some current events, hopefully provide some perspective and some clarity that leaves you more sure of who you are and what you stand for than uh, what you're against. So here we go. thought today it might be fun to... Uh, Take a little closer look about why our freedoms are evaporating like water droplets from a hot sidewalk. And I want to start with the big picture. So we're going to zoom out here to about 30,000 feet. And there we can see a perfect storm of economic trouble, civic decay, and geopolitical instability that's been developing, coming to a head for the past few years. Now, you know, I've talked for years about, you know, the fourth turning. And about, uh, you know, there's a storm that's coming. And I think it's pretty safe to say that storm began a while back. If last year wasn't a part of that storm, man, I don't want to see what, what the rest of it looks like. But I'm pretty certain we're, we're in the eye of the storm for the moment. Thomas Luongo, in a piece published on LewRockwell.com, has a marvelous essay about uh, the, the eye of the storm thanks to, uh, thanks to Davos. I'm probably saying it wrong, but this is where all the elites met, you know, to to map out where are we going to take the future of the globe. This is where uh, the very well-connected, not just political leaders, but uh, very, uh, very large uh, corporate leaders, financiers and so forth. I mean, you, you can start to look at it from a conspiratorial point of view if you want, but the fact of the matter is these are people who have their hands on the levers of power. Not all of them are elected but they certainly are trying to uh, move some things to their advantage. Here is the take from Thomas Luongo. He says, Congress recessed for the summer, passing neither the infrastructure nor spending bills that were the focus of all of Washington's attention for weeks, thanks to Kristen Sinema from Arizona. She personally torpedoed the Biden administration's signature piece of legislation that took months to wrangle to that point, and then she gave the whole thing a big John McCain-like thumbs down. Now, the debt ceiling suspension put in place under Trump has not been renewed. We're currently more than $6 trillion over it as he writes this. He says, fungal President Joe Biden looked up from his jello cup long enough to implore Congress to extend the eviction moratorium for those behind on rent and mortgage payments, which has been in place for more than a year. Estimates are 6.5 million people will now face eviction who are behind on their rent. He says U.S. tax cows have drawn down their savings at an alarming rate while facing this eviction cliff. By the way, that's you and me. (laughs) But hey, your per child tax credit is now showing up as a monthly check as long as the post office stays on the job. 
And by the way, they're refusing to go along with Biden's plans for forcing all government employees to be vaccinated against a virus which isn't killing anyone anymore. The latest wave of homeless people wandering the streets of the U.S. over the next year, he says, will be used by the Democrats and the media, but I repeat myself, to demonize the evil Republicans for not doing something about this new crisis. Now, here's the important part. Never mind that it was wholly manufactured by locking down parts of the world and blowing up both the financial markets and disrupting the natural flow of goods that is a functional economy. He says the panic that many feel will be real, but the question is who is actually panicking? Is it the dirty spreaders, the anti-science losers who refuse to take an experimental gene therapy, or the ones who ordered all of this insanity in the first place for their own personal and political gain? That's a good question. He says at every turn that the Biden administration lost major political battles in the last week. There's no denying that. That's an unqualified good thing. It ensures the anger and frustration over the direction of the country post-Trump will be unstoppable come the midterm elections, despite even the expected voter fraud next fall. He says we can count on that, just like we could count on it in 2020. But the bigger question I have now is whether or not we'll actually have those elections if it looks like we'll have a landslide on the populist side of the political ledger. What the little people want is anathema to what those who congregate every year at Davos, Switzerland, to plot out their dystopian future plans for humanity. So the odds are, or the odds rise rather, every day that they will suspend elections in Germany or France as a trial run for next fall's midterms. In fact, he says, book this prediction and double down on it regularly. You might make more on it than in the coming crypto bull market, but only barely. In fact, he says, when you stop and think this through in normal political calculus, how can Biden and Pelosi spin their failures as anything like victories now? The truth is plain to everyone. They lied, cheated, stole, and by all rational accounts, staged a coup on January 6th. They have everything they wanted, all the power of the legislative and executive branches, while simultaneously cowing the judicial branch into irrelevance. And a MILF from Zona undid it all with a press release. He says, don't underestimate the chutzpah of these venal people to try, because in Davos's new normal, all instances of public decency are simply a dog whistle for latent fascists and racists. But he says, given this string of failures, it's no wonder Pelosi is thinking about finally giving up her house seat. After all, what's left to do after nearly single-handedly destroying nearly every aspect of U.S. legislative uh, procedure? He says, I feel her anyway. There are just no more glass ceilings to break. Now, it doesn't seem like good news, and of course this will be spun as this is the most horrible thing ever, and it's because you're all racist by the press, but... You know, look beyond the hysterics and try to see what's really happening. He says Pelosi bluffed hard on the spending and infrastructure bills, but she forgot that, uh, you know, when you have a 50-50 split in the Senate and a united Republican front, it just takes one single senator who could take the awesome power of the Speaker's gavel and turn it around on her. By the way, he he compliments that uh, that senator from Arizona and says she knows the situation in Arizona is a powder keg she doesn't want to be near when it finally explodes over the results of the election audit yeah because that's still going on now he says the Davos or Davos beholden Democrat and GOP 
reaction to these losses has been increasingly strident and desperate jawboning about the Delta virant boogeyman while everyone in the West is sick and tired of this nonsense. But he says, then remember, it was just Monday where Biden was offering $100 to please get the vaccine. And by the end of the week, they were saying the voluntary phase is over. By the way, that was, uh, I think that was uh, Governor Cuomo from New York who was saying that. He says, this is honestly a bigger needle scratch than when the media turned on a dime about the COVID lab leak theory two months ago. All of a sudden, millions of voices cried out in anger and couldn't be silenced. And he links to, you know, some some video from the thousands and thousands of people demonstrating in the streets of Paris, Nice, Montpellier, Nantes, Strasbourg, Reims, Toulouse, Marseille, and other cities across France. What were they protesting? Vaccine passports and mandatory vaccinations. This is happening elsewhere in Europe as well. And Thomas Luongo says at every turn, those in the highest cabinet positions of the Biden junta embarrass themselves with doublespeak and cognitive dissonance that even the most mind-virus-addled normie can see as illogical. He says, I know there's no getting through to some people, but it doesn't uh, take them to have a critical mass, but it doesn't take them to have a critical mass, simply step back, fold their arms, and say, you know what? No. Saying no to Davos, however, he says, comes with a terrible price. Just ask the Brits who've been locked down for more than a year since winning their freedom from the EU via Brexit. Now add in the vagaries of Mother Nature dealing with an increasingly precarious dance between the Earth's weakening magnetic field and the sun's increasing activity. And we have extreme weather all over the globe, making every day of every climate alarmist ninny with a diaper on their face and a stick in their rear. The western half of the U.S. is either on fire or suffering from a crop-destroying, herd-depleting drought, which has everyone looking to a dysfunctional, if not outright paralyzed, FedGov for help. But there's none forthcoming. Supply chains for basic goods like meat, lumber, electricity, and water are failing, and the damage done to them will take years to undo. Now, these natural disasters wouldn't be so difficult to deal with if Davos hadn't pursued this great reset operation in the first place and carried it through the first six months of Biden's anti-administration. But, you know, in for a penny, in for millions dead for the greater good. He says Davos doesn't even care about the people who are its staunchest supporters, no less those who it wants to destroy. Meat eaters, individualists, white people and Christians, you know, most Americans. Just look at their home turf of Europe. Floods wiped out whole towns in Germany while the presumed incoming leader, handpicked of course, Davos style, cried crocodile tears over hundreds dead while virtue signaling about climate change and laughing at the plight of the plebes he's expected to lead in a few months. At the rate the protests in France are going, the ECB will go bankrupt just supplying the the police with uh, tear gas and water cannons. If you don't realize that the Delta variant only exists to make the excuse to cancel any election that is set to go against Davos, then he says you aren't paying attention at all. We've reached the point and the moment where Davos's plans to vandalize the American and European people are finally coming to fruition. And from this week's events forward, he says, we will be in a state of emergency described brilliantly in V for Vendetta, where the media is used to ratchet up the fear beyond any reasonable level. And the people watching increasingly say, oh, bollocks. Or as we say here in the United States, blank this noise. He says, the ride from here will only get worse. And our only recourse is to look to shoring up our local communities rather than hope for any saviors at the ballot box. 
the rules have changed. He says democracy has been outlawed and and the courts neutralized. The push for total control over your movement, your thoughts, and your basic right to make your way in the world is no longer protected by law. In fact, the law is openly hostile to your very existence. Just ask Australians and Canadians. We've always known that public health was the cheat code to tyranny. Now we're seeing it weaponized in a way that isn't just creepy. It's chilling in its inhumanity. But the kids still think communists care about them. He says there's an urgency to this that wasn't there before. In the days after neutralizing Trump, they backed off thinking there was more time, that there was more than a full year to step up or to stepwise up the pressure on us. But it turned out that COVID-19 simply wasn't deadly enough and therapeutics for it strong enough to unmask the agenda behind the operation. So he says Don Lemon can just get stuffed if he thinks we're going to give up our livelihoods when we could just buy ivermectin over the freaking counter and man up. But that's not something Don's good at. He says, I suggest locking Don in his office and he can door dash his tofurkey and bean sprouts, bean sprouts rather, in between segments of his unwatched television gig subsidized by fake Fed funny money. But no toilet paper for him or the vaxxed. That needs to be reserved for real men eating the meat and growing the soybeans and the sprouts while we sort out the pulpwood shortage he helped create. So while they think it's time to turn the unvaxxed into scapegoats for why we all can't have nice things, he says that's going to quickly turn against them. People like Don Lemon are there to create the consensus to justify the pogroms they envision in their little oxygen and starved brains. He says I'd smile and say something pithy like Molen Labe but it would be just a little too on the nose. Now, from here, he goes into uh, what's going on with the Wall Street to the long dark or just long dollars. But the bottom line is this. He says, in the end, it's not all gloom and doom. The signs are everywhere that the bonds holding this cartel of oligarchs together are breaking. In fact, he's talked about this in previous pieces, previous pieces that he links to in this article. In fact, he says, honestly, you'd have to be a complete nincompoop to think that Jamie Demon and the uh, narcissists on Wall Street will roll over to Herr Schwab without going a few rounds in the oligarch version of the UFC octagon. So Yellen may be trying to destroy Wall Street for Schwab, but Powell and the FOMC are still on the job, even if they sound as incoherent as on inflation as the CDC director does on, uh, well, everything. He says, I ask you to think about the last two Fed meetings. First, he drained overseas markets of dollars by raising the reverse repo rate to 0.05%. This week, he created a standing repo facility for for foreign counterparties to hand them back those dollars. They'll do this only because they're now desperate for them, but it will drain them of their high-quality repo collateral, in other words, U.S. Treasuries. Since the Fed knows there will be no U.S. Treasuries issued for the next few months, thanks to the debt ceiling kerfuffle being unresolved, they need a supply of them to hand back to the banks they know are going to be in need of them. The result was the first one-plus trillion print of the Fed's domestic reverse repo facility, which hands Treasuries back to the banks in exchange for dollars, providing them with now very scarce collateral. Now, downstream from this should further destabilize overseas markets, in other words, Europe, while handing Wall Street and domestic banks all the collateral they could ever need to cover this dangerous period that we're entering. It's it's a little bit disheartening, but onward we go. I think media bias has been a major dynamic in our growing societal chaos. And I have an excellent article here from James Bovard that came out over the weekend, which uh, indicates the memo apparently has gone out for the mass media to become even more biased 
in an effort to save our democracy. No wonder our trust in the media continues to tank. James Bovard writes, The Washington Post media columnist is summoning saviors because our democracy is under attack. This is Margaret Sullivan he's referring to. She wants Washington journalists to adopt a pro-democracy frame and start being patriotic. Now, reporters should cease focusing on winners and losers in political skirmishes and instead ask who is serving democracy and who is undermining it. I don't know about you, but just, just as an aside here, if we replaced the word democracy with the party, this would make a whole lot more sense because this sounds exactly like how a good party, you know, uh, subscriber would, would, ser- would, would put the information. This is the way they would describe it especially if we're talking the Communist Party. From Sullivan's view, he says, media coverage has been fatally handicapped by purporting to accurately portray political developments. Instead, it's time for reporters to take sides on the barricades. Now, Bovard says Sullivan's prescription for the press corps is reminiscent of a corporation that's almost bankrupt and gambles everything on a desperate Hail Mary pass. Last month, He's talking about June. The Reuters Institute reported that only 29% of Americans trusted the news media. That's the lowest rating of any of the 46 nations surveyed. A Gallup poll last, week, last year rather revealed that 86% of Americans believe the media was politically biased. Practically the only folks who don't recognize the bias are those who share the media's slant. But according to Sullivan, the problem is that some journalists are still betraying the nation by excessively focusing on the facts. That's the same perspective of Stanford University journalism professor Ted Glasser, who recently asserted that journalism should free itself from this notion of objectivity and become overt and candid advocates for social justice. I already thought they had, but hey, (laughs) silly me. James Bovard says Sullivan anchors her column with a quote from Norm Ornstein, a fixture of Washington think tanks since the Calvin Coolidge administration. Ornstein warned that balanced treatment of an unbalanced phenomenon distorts reality. How can we know Ornstein is a reliable sage? Well, after Biden was inaugurated, Ornstein tweeted, I am so relieved, so happy and so proud that this wonderful, grounded, decent, compassionate and patriotic man is our president. Now, Sullivan's own columns reveal her belief that journalists should glorify high-ranking government officials. Last week, last month, rather, thousands of pages of heavily redacted emails from COVID czar Anthony Fauci exposed his flip-flops on the benefits of mass panic and the efficacy of face masks and lockdowns. They also revealed his concerns to squash any allegations that COVID-19 emerged from a Chinese lab bankrolled by the U.S. government. Fauci responded to the controversy by sainting himself and ludicrously proclaiming that science and the truth are being attacked. And Sullivan raced to the rescue with a column headlined, Only in our anti-truth hellscape could Anthony Fauci become a supervillain. Sullivan, like the clueless policeman on the South Park cartoon, assured readers, there's nothing to see here. Move along. Sullivan concluded no one should claim that Fauci is infallible, but worshipping him regardless is vital for democracy. Now, Sullivan's recent column was sparked by her rage over the press coverage of the first hearing by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's panel on the January 6th Capitol clash. Sullivan lamented the Democratic leadership has been trying to assemble a bipartisan panel that would study that mob attack on our democracy. Sullivan summarized the hearings as somber, powerful, pointedly non-political testimony from four police officers attacked during the insurrection. 
Yeah, non-political except for the message that some protesters were fascist traitors, as Representative Jamie Raskin from Maryland declared. The congressional panelists and police concurred that all of the 9,000 protesters near the Capitol were terrorists, a label that now apparently applies to anyone in the same zip code when political violence occurs. The hearing offered demagoguery in lieu of disclosure and was choreographed to give congressmen a chance to cry for the television cameras. Neither Sullivan nor anyone at that hearing voiced any concern over the continued refusal to disclose 14,000 hours of surveillance videos taken inside the Capitol on January 6th. Key evidence that could settle some of the controversies around that day. The panelists ignored the reports by the Inspector General and others that exposed the stunning failures of readiness by the FBI, Capitol Police and other agencies on January 6th. Nor were there any questions about what role, if any, FBI undercover agents or informants may have had in that day's mayhem. It was as if the recent revelations of the FBI's role in masterminding the purported plot to kidnap Governor, uh, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer never occurred. Now, James Bovard points out Sullivan probably considers her own work as a model for responsible advocacy. One week before the election last year, Sullivan tweeted her approval of a post column on Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, and the politics of unconditional love, understated and incisive. That column by the Post Monica Hess exonerated the presidential candidate for his son's crimes and concluded that Joe Biden might be the dad that America dreams of having. During his decades in the Senate, Biden was renowned for championing punitive crime bills to impose his favorite cure, lock the SOBs up. Sullivan will join Hunter Biden on the roster of guest speakers this fall for a Tulane University course on media polarization and public policy impacts. A better headline for Sullivan's recent column would have been the Hunter Biden laptop recipe for saving democracy. After revelations began pouring out last fall from the laptop that Hunter Biden left at a Delaware computer repair shop, Twitter and Facebook banned reposts of the New York Post exposés on the laptop's contents. National Public Radio and many other outlets derided the laptop excerpts as Russian disinformation. The mainstream media succeeded in minimizing the story's impact on the election, regardless of subsequent revelations confirming the laptop's authenticity. Perhaps such sensitivity helped inspire Sullivan's triumphal column just after Biden's victory on how the media saved democracy. How can journalists tell, though, who is serving democracy? Most Washington journalists reflexively presume that being pro-government is the same as being pro-democracy. The New York Times reporter covering the Justice Department, Katie Benner, evinced this mindset when she denounced Trump supporters as enemies of the state in a tweet this week. Benner, Benner believes that journalists must take action if a politician seems to threaten the state. By the way, prior to joining the Times, she wrote for the Beijing Review owned by the Chinese Communist Party. Sullivan never explains how Washington reporters ever became qualified to serve as grand inquisitors for democracy, casting judgment on every politician and proposal. Most reporters have the same level of intellectual curiosity as the average lottery ticket buyer. Reporters react to the word bipartisan like cocaine addicts desperate for another political virtue signal. And he says Sullivan's panacea is also suspect because most Washington press poobahs show more affection for Leviathan than for democracy. The Washington Post devotes far more news hole to publishing leaks from FBI officials than to exposing FBI abuses. Washington Post columnist Eugene Robinson whooped, God bless the deep state, 
touting his blind trust in federal agencies with vast secretive powers. Earlier this week, Washington Post columnist Max Boot gushed that Saudi Arabia is becoming more progressive than America because the government was forcing Saudis to get uh, vaccinated. By the way, Boot later deleted that tweet. Sullivan is seeking to inflame the zealotry of a group that's already fanatically in favor of authoritarian COVID policies. Vox senior correspondent Ian Milheiser yesterday, that would be Thursday, the 29th of July, urged, urged Congress to financially destroy anyone who does not get jabbed. Well, it looks like we're up against the break here, so we've got to uh, bow out for a few moments, take care of some sponsors. You are listening to the Disciples of Liberty Show. I'm Brian Hyde, filling in for Tim Alders, here on the America Out Loud Network. Let's get real. Let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is McCullough Report. Are you tired of your tired vitamins? Consider Healthy Cell. These are pill-free vitamins that are in convenient gel packs Uh, I like the Focus and Recall supplement. I use this a lot. You know, your brain uses a lot of energy, and it depends on a variety of micronutrients and vitamins. Boost your short-term focus and long-term brain power with Healthy Cell's Focus and Recall vitamins. So go to HealthyCell.com, use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD, for 20% off your first order of any Healthy Cell product. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only eight seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off. AmericaOutloud.com. Simply put, we're patriots who believe in Ronald Reagan's vision of a shining city on a hill. From sea to shining sea, you can listen in on iHeartRadio. Our free apps are on Apple, Android, or Alexa, or our world-class media player. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Hey, once again, welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty here on the America Out Loud Network. My name is Brian Hyde. Very happy to be filling in for the wonderful Tim Alders today. Well, let's dive right back in with both feet. See what else we can get our minds around. Well, let's jump right in. That whole difference between narrative and reality, I swear it's getting more important by the moment. Case in point, 
You remember hearing about that plot last year to kidnap the governor of Michigan? I mean, it's been a centerpiece of proof that anti-government extremism is, in fact, our greatest threat in America. Now, it's not the first time we've seen pretty crazy things like this come up. And, oh, my goodness, another militia is planning anti-government violence. And these guys actually were going to kidnap and try the governor of Michigan because they were upset with her lockdown policies. I mean, it makes for some pretty good, uh, you know, press. It makes it makes for a lot of uh, frantic headlines. And, you know, Maxine Waters can hold forth. This is the kind of thing that we're talking about. This is why we have to crack down on domestic extremism and white supremacy and blah, 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 blah. Okay, so there's the narrative. There's the danger. But as usual, you leave it to a real, or I should say an authentic journalist like Glenn Greenwald, and suddenly that narrative starts to come apart like a soup sandwich. Because the idea of kidnapping the governor came from the FBI, not the people that it was trying to entice into joining the plot. This is from an article published on AntiEmpire.com. And again, this is the great Glenn Greenwald. He says, the narrative that domestic anti-government extremism is the greatest threat to U.S. national security, by the way, the official position of the U.S. security state and Biden administration, received its most potent boost in October 2020, less than one month before the presidential election. That's when the FBI and Michigan state officials announced the arrest of 13 people on terrorism conspiracy and weapons charges with six of them accused of participating in a plot to kidnap Michigan's Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer, who'd been a particular target of criticism from President Trump for her advocacy for harsh COVID lockdown measures. Now, the headline that's, headlines that followed were dramatic and fear-inducing. The FBI says Michigan anti-government group plotted to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer, announced the New York Times. That same night, ABC News began its broadcast this way. Tonight we take you into a hidden world, a place authorities say gave birth to a violent domestic terror plot in Michigan, foiled by the FBI. Glenn Greenwald says Democrats and liberal journalists instantly seized on this storyline to spin a pre-election theme that was as extreme as it was predictable. Governor Whitmer herself blamed Trump, claiming that the plotters heard the president's words not as a rebuke, but as a rallying cry, as a call to action. Oh, she's a victim. (laughs) Representative Maxine Waters claimed the president is a deranged lunatic and he's inspired white supremacists to violence, the latest of which was a plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer. Adding these groups have attempted to kill many of us in recent years. They are following Trump's lead. Vox's paid television watcher and video manipulator Aaron Rupar drew this inference. Trump hasn't commended the FBI for breaking up the Whitmer kidnapping murder plot because, as always, he doesn't want to denounce his base. Michael Moore called for Trump's arrest for having incited the kidnapping plot against Governor Whitmer. One viral tweet from a popular Democratic Party activist simply declared, Trump should be arrested for this plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer. There's no doubt he inspired this terrorism. Oh, and New York Governor Andrew Cuomo instantly declared it to be a terrorist attack on America. We must condemn and call out the cowardly plot against Governor Whitmer for what it is, domestic terrorism. MSNBC's social media star Kyle Griffin cast it as a coup attempt. The FBI thwarted what they described as a plot to violently overthrow the government and kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. 
Wow. CNN's Jim Sudo pronounced it uh, deeply alarming. I mean, talk about a one-note symphony. A lengthy CNN article dressed up as an investigative expose that was little more than stenography of FBI messaging disseminated from behind a shield of anonymity purported in the headline to take the reader inside the plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer. It claimed that it all began when angry discussions about COVID restrictions spiraled into a terrorism plot, officials say, with Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer the target of a kidnapping scheme. Now, CNN heralded the FBI's use of informants and agents to break up the plot, but depicted them as nothing more than passive bystanders reporting what the domestic terrorists were plotting. This is how they put it. The watchman had been flagged to the FBI in March, and one of its members was now an informant. That informant, others on the inside, as well as undercover operatives and recordings, allowed the Bureau to monitor what was happening from then on. But Glenn Greenwald says the article never once hinted at let alone described the highly active role of these informants and agents themselves in encouraging and designing the plot. Instead, it depicted these anti-government activists as leading one another on their own to commit what CNN called treason in a quaint town. The more honest headline for this CNN article would have been inside the FBI's tale of the plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer. But since CNN never questions the FBI, they employ their top agents and operatives once they leave the Bureau in order to disseminate their propaganda. This is what the country got from the most trusted name in news. (laughs) Now, Governor Whitmer herself attempted to prolong the news cycle as much as possible, all but declaring herself off limits from criticism by equating, equating any critiques of her governance with incitement to terrorism. Well, that's handy. Appearing on Meet the Press two Sundays after the plot was revealed, Whitmer said it was incredibly disturbing that the President of the United States, 10 days after a plot to kidnap, put me on trial and execute me, 10 days after that was uncovered, the President is at it again and inspiring and incentivizing and inciting this kind of domestic terrorism. So on October 22nd, just two weeks before Election Day, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow hosted Whitmer and told the Michigan governor that the evidence was clear that Trump had been turning on a faucet of violent threats against her. Whitmer agreed that Trump was to blame for the kidnapping plot by repeatedly having attacked her in his rallies. Joe Biden also made extreme use of the, or repeated use of the storyline, appearing at a campaign rally in Michigan on October 16th. The Democratic candidate blasted Trump for the crime of continuing to criticize Whitmer even after she was the target of a terror plot. He explicitly blamed Trump for having incited it. When the president tweeted, liberate Michigan, liberate Michigan, that's the call that was heard. That was the dog whistle. And he accused Trump of purposely stroking a wave of the worst kind of terrorism on U.S. soil. It's the sort of behavior you might expect from ISIS, he said of the accused. Now, that's a lot lot of heavy breathing, a lot of breathlessness there. Yet from the start... Glenn Greenwald points out there were ample and potent reasons to distrust the FBI's version of events. To begin with, FBI press releases are typically filled with lies, yet media outlets due to some combination of excessive gullibility and inability to learn lessons or a desire to be deceived continue to treat them as gospel. For another, the majority of terror plots the FBI claimed to detect and break up during the first war on terror were in fact Plots manufactured, funded, and driven by the FBI itself. 
Indeed, the FBI has previously acknowledged that its own powers and budget depend on keeping Americans in fear of such attacks. Former FBI Assistant Director Thomas Fuentes in a documentary called The Newberg Sting about a 2009 FBI arrest of four men on terrorism charges had a very candid admission about it. Are you starting to see the picture here? You know, this whole idea of the the plot of kidnapping uh, Governor Whitmer of Michigan back in October, that was an FBI creation. And one of the craziest admissions comes from former FBI Assistant Director Thomas Fuentes in a documentary called The Newberg Sting about a 2009 FBI arrest of four men on terrorism charges. Listen to this extremely candid admission. Quote, If you're submitting budget proposals for a law enforcement agency, for an intelligence agency, you're not going to submit the proposal that we won the war on terror and everything's great. Because the first thing that's going to happen is your budget's going to be cut in half. You know, it's my opposite of Jesse Jackson's keep hope alive. It's keep fear alive. Keep it alive. End quote. Yeah, that's that's pretty candid. All right. Greenwald says in the Whitmer kidnapping case, the FBI's own affidavit in support of the charges acknowledged the involvement in the plot of both informants and undercover FBI agents over several months. And by the way, his article includes screenshots from the actual documents telling us the FBI relied on information provided by confidential human sources and undercover employees over several months. In some, there was no way to avoid suspicions about the FBI's crucial role in a plot like this, absent extreme ignorance about the Bureau's behavior over the last two decades, or an intentional desire to sow fear about right-wing extremists attacking Democratic Party officials one month before the 2020 presidential election. In fact, the signs of FBI involvement were there from the start for those who, unlike CNN, wanted to know the truth. A reporter from the Detroit Free Press, published just two days after CNN's FBI stenography, noted that FBI agents were incapable of identifying any specifics of this supposed plot, adding that defense attorneys were adamant that those accused were merely engaged in idle chatter, boasting that they were never really serious about following through. Then the paper added that for defense lawyers, it remains to be seen what roles the undercover informants and FBI agents played in the case and whether they pushed the others into carrying out the plan. Meanwhile, an actually independent journalist, Michael Tracy, had no trouble identifying the telltale signs of FBI orchestration that were so apparent countless times during the first war on terror. Three days before the CNN story, he wrote... Looks like very elaborate long-term use of numerous FBI informants in that alleged Michigan militia plot. But Greenwald says the value of depicting Trump as having incited a frightening terrorist attack just weeks before the election and the zeal to feed the broader narrative pushed by the U.S. security state that anti-government extremism is America's greatest national security threat drowned out any skepticism. The storyline was clear and unquestioned. Trump was inciting ISIS-like terrorism on U.S. soil and right-wing extremists who would fester even after Trump was done were the primary menace that requires new domestic powers and larger budgets in order to defeat. Yet just as happened with so many other narratives, 
From the origins of COVID to Hunter Biden's corrupt use of his ties to his father, Trump's defeat means the media is now willing to reconsider some of the propaganda that was pushed in the lead up to the election. An excellent piece of investigative journalism published by BuzzFeed on Tuesday documents that far from being passive observers of the plot, FBI informants and agents were the key drivers of it. Quote, an examination of the case by BuzzFeed News also reveals that some of those informants acting under the direction of the FBI played a far larger role than has previously been imported, reported rather. Working in secret, they did more than just passively observe and report on the actions of suspects. Instead, they had a hand in nearly every aspect of the alleged plot, starting with its inception. The extent of their involvement raises questions as to whether there would have even been a conspiracy without them. End quote. So central to this plot were those acting at the behest of the FBI that many of the accused plotters only met each other because of meetings arranged at the direction of the FBI. Who targeted them based on social media postings and other political activities suggesting anti-government or anti-Whitmer sentiments that could be exploited. This is another uh, quote here, I believe from BuzzFeed, longtime government informant from Wisconsin, for example, helped organize a series of meetings around the country where many of the alleged plotters first met one another and the earliest notions of a plan took root. Now, some of the people are saying this. The Wisconsin informant even paid for some hotel rooms and food as an incentive to get people to come. Now, Glenn Greenwald says one of the FBI's informants, a former Iraq war soldier, became so deeply enmeshed in a Michigan or I'm sorry, a Michigan militant group that he rose to become its second in command. That's the FBI informant. Remember, with his leadership role in one of the key groups, all while acting under the direction of the FBI, he was encouraging members to collaborate with other potential suspects and paying for their transportation to meetings. Indeed, he even prodded the alleged mastermind of the kidnapping plot to advance his plan and then baited the trap that led to the arrest. Now, Greenwald says a review of not only the BuzzFeed reporting, but also the underlying court documents leaves little doubt that the primary impetus for this plot came over and over from the FBI. On July 12th, a lawyer for one of the defendants filed a motion asking the court to compel the FBI to turn over all chats which their agents and informants had involving the plot. He did so on the ground that the few chats they had obtained themselves from their own clients repeatedly showed the FBI pushing and prodding its agents to over and over to lure defendants into more meetings, to join in more recon exercises, and to take as many steps as possible toward the plot. So while it was clear from the start that there were FBI informants and agents in the middle of all this, it turns out that at least half of those involved were acting on FBI orders, 12 informants and agents. Now, as BuzzFeed says, those acting at the behest of the FBI had a hand in nearly every aspect of the alleged plot, starting with its inception. All of that, concluded the reporters, raises questions as to whether there could have even been a conspiracy without them. But Greenwald says this evidence doesn't so much raise that question as much as it answers it. The idea of kidnapping Governor Whitmer came from the FBI. It was a plot designed by the agency. And they then went on to hunt on the hunt to target people they believed they could manipulate into joining the plot. 
Either people were easily manipulated due to psychological weakness, financial vulnerability, and or their strongly held political views. In sum, the FBI devised this plot, was the primary organizer of it, funded it, purposely directed their targets to pose for incriminating pictures that they then released to the press, and then heaped praise on themselves for stopping what they themselves had created. Now, this is not new. And if you've been paying attention to what the FBI has been up to over the last 20 or 30 years, you'll understand. And, and this is a tough balance. I, I, I don't want to sound like poor me, but I want you to understand that sometimes it feels like there's, there's a tightrope that I'm walking here. I want to talk about the things that are going on that I believe are, are worth noting, worth paying attention to. And frankly, some of those things are not, uh, you know, good news. Some of these are hard facts to face. But my goal always, 100% of the time, is to present that information in a way that it provides perspective. Whether you agree with it or not, it's just, you know, this is broadening your, your overall view of what's going on. But it's also helping you better understand what's happening and, and helping you be more sure of who you are and what you stand for than you were before. As opposed to just simply getting you riled up and then, you know, getting you wound up now. Go. <laughs> take it out on take it out on your dog or whatever the case may be. I, I came across an article from uh, the incredible Lawrence W. Reed. And I guess uh, there was there was a little bit of a, an, an anniversary of sorts that uh, that came about. This was was very surprising to me. But uh, apparently, let me see when he wrote this. This was uh, yeah, this was just published yesterday. And he says, today marks an infamous centennial. It was on July 21st, 1921, 100 years ago. Adolf Hitler assumed the leadership of the National Socialist German Workers' Party, better known as the Nazis, and it became his vehicle to power. And I know people kind of have a knee-jerk reaction, you know, whenever, you know, anytime you mention Hitler, oh, Godwin's Law, somebody's reduced to arguing you're like Hitler. But I want you to hear the case that Lawrence W. Reed makes in what the Nazis had in common with every other collectivist regime in the 20th century. One of the reasons to understand this is because you got a bunch of little uh, neo-commies running around dressed in black block and threatening to bash the fash, you know, punch anybody in the face who doesn't agree with them, who claim they are fighting Nazis. Everybody who disagrees with us is Nazis. But the ideology to which they've attached themselves is just as bloody, just as concentrated on spurning the rights of the individual as anything that Hitler came up with. They don't realize that they're ideological blood brothers. Here's what Lawrence Reed has to say. He says, note the formal official name of the party. It was not the National Capitalist German Workers' Party. It was not the National Free Market German Workers' Party, nor was it the National Christian German Workers' Party. Yet a century later, claims that Nazis were capitalist or Christian or both, though preposterous, are still occasionally heard. Though Hitler quoted scripture early in his career when it was politically convenient, by the way, he lied often, incidentally, he also said the Bible was a fairy tale invented by the Jews. He appointed many vehement anti-Christians to high office, arrested, jailed, tortured, killed many priests and pastors, denied Jesus was a Jew, even ordered a new Bible stripped of all references to Jews and Jewish history. 
Balder von Schirach, head of the Hitler Youth, certainly got the memo. The destruction of Christianity was explicitly recognized as a purpose of the National Socialist Movement, he said, and noted in as noted in evidence produced at the Nuremberg trials and in this video, which is linked in the article. In a story on the Nazi Bible, London's Daily Mail reported, Hitler admired the ceremony and majesty of the church, and he admitted as much in Mein Kampf, but hated its teachings, which had no place in his vision of Germanic supermen ruling lesser races, devoid of outdated concepts such as mercy and love. But he knew the power of the church in Germany, and even he could not banish it overnight. He was even forced to abandon the systematic murder of the handicapped and the insane before the war when outspoken bishops began to speak against it. Instead, his plan was to gradually Nazify the church, beginning with a theological center he set up in 1939 to rewrite the Holy Bible. Now, in the real Bible, Lawrence Reed points out, Matthew 7.16 famously declares, By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? What Hitler and Nazism produced, genocide, warfare, state control, and endless evil in many forms, constitutes the very antithesis of the teachings of Jesus. The lie that Nazism was capitalist instead of what the Nazis themselves said it was, namely socialist, derives from the fact that the Hitler regime did not engage in wholesale or widespread nationalization of businesses. In the Third Reich, you might retain legal title to a factory, but if you did not do as the Nazis ordered, you would be, shall we say, dispatched. Writing in his magnum opus, Human Action, Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises explained, Nazism was socialism under the outward guise of the terminology of capitalism. He said, quote, The second pattern of socialism, we may call it the Hindenburg or German pattern, nominally and seemingly preserves private ownership of the means of production and keeps the appearance of ordinary markets, prices, wages, and interest rates. There are, however, no longer entrepreneurs, but only shop managers. These shop managers are seemingly instrumental in the conduct of the enterprises entrusted to them. They buy and sell, hire and discharge workers, and remunerate their services, contract debts and pay interest in amortization. But in all their activities, they are bound to obey unconditionally the orders issued by the government supreme office of production management. This office tells the shop managers what and how to produce, at what prices and from whom to buy, at what prices and to whom to sell. It assigns every worker his job and fixes his wages. It decrees to whom and on what terms the capitalists must entrust their funds. Market exchange is merely a sham. All the wages, prices, and interest rates are fixed by the government. They are wages, prices, and interest rates in appearance only. In fact, they are merely quantitative terms in the government's orders determining each citizen's job, income, consumption, and standard of living. The government directs all production activities. The shop managers are subject to the government, not the consumer's demand, and the market's price structure. End quote. Now, Lawrence Reed says, does that look like capitalism to any thoughtful, honest person with no agenda but the truth? Hardly. In fact, he once wrote that Lenin... Mao, Pol Pot, Castro, Hitler, and Mussolini, they were all anti-capitalist peas in the same socialist collectivist pod. They all claimed to be socialists. They all sought to concentrate power in the state and to glorify the state. They all stomped on individuals who wanted nothing more than to pursue their own ambitions in peaceful commerce. They all denigrated private property, either by outright seizure or by relegating it to serve the purposes of the state. 
Now, Michael Reiger argues that some of the confusion about how to label Nazi economics stems from socialism's ever-shifting varieties. Socialists are notorious rather for claiming this is it, when they're just writing or daydreaming about it and then claiming that that wasn't it when it flops. Reiger writes, the wide variance between utopian socialism, communism, national socialism, and democratic socialism makes it remarkably easy for members of each ideology to wag their fingers at the others and say, that wasn't real socialism. However, there is one common thread in all of these definitions of socialism. From St. Simon to AOC, all self-described socialists have shared the belief that top-down answers to society's problems are superior to the bottom-up answers created by the free market. Rather than admit that Nazism was socialist and disastrous, diehard socialists just declare, well, that wasn't socialism. It would be more honest if they just said, oops. But they typically react the same way in vehement denial to failed socialist experiments everywhere from the Soviet Union to Venezuela. Fee's director of content, Dan Sanchez, generated numerous affirmations when he recently tweeted this, quote, cases of socialism they don't like, not true socialism. Cases of capitalism they do like, not true capitalism. Socialists always lose on economics, so they try to win with wordplay. Think about this. Here's a quote. This is from Adolf Hitler in a 1931 interview with Richard Brighting. Quote, the good of the community takes priority over that of the individual, but the state should retain control. Every owner should feel himself to be an agent of the state. It is his duty not to misuse his possessions to the detriment of the state or the interests of his fellow countrymen. That is the overriding point. The Third Reich will always retain the right to control property owners. That's as socialist as it gets, says Larry Reed. So a century ago, a megalomaniac began his rise to political power. The world suffered unspeakable catastrophe at the hands of that very anti-Christian, anti-capitalist monster. And the warning here is don't be gullible or foolish enough to suggest that he was otherwise. The Centers for Disease Control, though, I want to talk a little bit about them because right now they are in crisis People don't believe them. And when I say people, I mean not just people like me who are questioning stuff, but even CNN is like, uh, whiskey tango foxtrot, what is going on, CDC, with, with your mind, making up your mind about masks? Jeffrey Tucker has an excellent article. I recommend, actually, I recommend pretty much anything he writes COVID related because he has been one of the very few and principled voices of reason out there who's been willing to actually do the homework and dig in and and research things for himself. And I like his take here about how the CDC is exercising arbitrary power while vandalizing science. Jeffrey Tucker says, I'm still trying to wrap my brain around the astonishing shift from the CDC on Tuesday, July 27th. It's not just that the CDC is re-recommending masks for people indoors in many parts of the country, which could include your neighborhood or not, and this could change tomorrow. Right now, he says it disproportionately affects red states, but whether and to what extent you protect yourself from disease with a paper strapped to your mouth and nose is now wholly contingent on data reporting and interpretation. His point is it might feel like science, but it has a better name, arbitrary power out with the constitution out of traditions of law out with legislatures and out with the will of the people but what's even stranger was the rationale that the cdc cited to claim that the delta variant renders the vaccines you know the ones that have been hyped with unrelenting propaganda for many months including stigmatization and demonization of those who refuse 
substantially less effective for stopping infection than President Biden was touting just last week. He says our thinking on the subject is supposed to mutate at the same pace as the virus itself. It's exhausting, and it triggers anyone's BS detector. How in the world does the CDC expect anyone to believe anything it says in the future? Now, to be sure, the claim that breakthrough infections, PCR positives and vaccinated individuals might be more common than thought could, in fact, be true. In fact, he says, I tend to think it is. It's a general principle of immunology that for viruses that mutate quickly, inoculation cannot always keep up as an infection preventive. And he says this is one reason that these fields have for the better part of 100 years observed that natural immunity is to be preferred if that's an option. It's safer and more globally effective for pathogens that are mild for most people, which is exactly what the science is pointlessly showing yet again now. Vaccines are glorious for stable viruses like measles and smallpox, but less comprehensively effective for flus and coronaviruses, which is saying nothing controversial. For example, a study from Houston, Texas, shows the Delta variant is more transmissible than the wild type or other mutations. Looks like we're up against the clock once again. Hey, it's been a pleasure sitting in for Tim Alders here on the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network.